From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of Your Ojai Magazine, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this week is the author, Ron Phillips, whose latest book, The Hands of Juan Peron, has just been published. Ron takes a historical incident and takes it in some very mysterious places and exciting. It's a very suspenseful page-turning book, and uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed talking to Ron, and I hope you do as well. Hey, Ron, thanks for joining me. Uh, Thanks a lot for having me, Brett. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on. The book, this is your third book? Second. Second book, Hands of Juan Peron. And what's really interesting about it, it it revolves around an actual historical event. Is that true? That's right. It happened in 1987. And can you describe that event for us? Yeah, um... Juan Perón, as many people know, was president of Argentina, actually twice. Twice, yeah. And um, he died in 1973, and there was a family crypt in La Chacarita Cemetery just outside of Buenos Aires. And... um, One night in July of 1987, someone broke into his crypt, broke into his um, casket, and surgically severed his hands. Isn't that bizarre? It is bizarre. So the story, as I vaguely recall at the time, was they figured it was anti-Peronistas that through some magical realism, we're going to remove his power. His, they were going to sever him from his ability to affect events or something. It was very occult. Uh, but you take a completely different angle on that. Well, no one was ever charged with that uh, crime, and the hands were never found. Um, you're right about the anti-Pernistas. Um there was a point where they sent um, ransom requests for $8 million. Yeah. And it was found that these people were crazies. <laughs> or just uh, opportunistic. Just right. knew those hands were missing, so why not? Right. Um, yeah, there's a funny story like that about the Mona Lisa after it was robbed in 1917 or whatever. So a lot of people don't know it went missing for, what, a couple, three years? Right. That there were something like 17 people that were approached about buying the original. Right. We don't know how many actually did. Right. So these people bought these copies thinking they had the original Mona Lisa. And that reminds me of that, you know, the ransom for the hands. Right. And so nothing really happened after that um, for years until um, 
I read a story in the Wall Street Journal about it. Uh, it was kind of a what's known as a, a wrap-up story um, about the theft, and nobody had ever um, solved it. And uh, we happened to go to Buenos Aires for the millennium. And while I was there, I was so intrigued by the, the concept that um, I did a lot of research. And I went out to the cemetery, and I went to a lot of places um, that had historical relevance to the story. And I, I went to the wonderful library in Buenos Aires. And I learned that Perón had a very, very close tie with the Nazis. Yeah, I was surprised to learn about that. I knew he was a, you know, he was a populist uh, demagoguery, but I thought he got, came from the working classes. That was the source of his base. But I guess the Nazis did too, so maybe that isn't so surprising. Yeah, um, the, he uh, he served as a focal point for um, Burman, the Nazi chancellor. Yeah, it was uh, Hitler's secretary. Yeah, secretary. Um, to send money and treasures to Buenos Aires. Um, the ones they looted across uh, Europe. Right. And they actually sent submarines. Really? With gold. There's a submarine museum in Germany that is fascinating, that alludes to that. But um, there were... You know, all of the loot that they stole, um, some of it was stored in caves, as you know. Yeah, and you talk about that Eastern Europe and salt mines and stuff to keep it dry. Right. And a lot of it went to Argentina through Perón. And a lot of it has been unrecovered. And... So I started learning all of these individual things that had to do with Perón and the Nazis. And so I thought, hey, why can't this be a might-have-been book about yeah. the Nazis? It's a great premise. Um, and uh, stealing his hands because they needed them to digitally open a secret vault. Yeah, literally digitally because of the fingers. Right. Yeah. And um, then I have had um, a real interest in journalism. I, I went to the University of Missouri Journalism Yeah, Columbia. School. That's a big, big school. And, um, and I've seen what's happened to newspapers. Um, and how they are transmuting into video journals, podcasts, and all kinds of things. Or trying to. Yeah, it's tough. That is, you really go into that digital transformation like that forms right. the, the glasses. I thought that section was really fascinating. Well, thank you. And so the protagonist became... A, um, a, a, a reporter who's had family ties 
to Buenos Aires and and his all. mom, right? His father was a bureau chief of the oh, okay. I thought, yeah. Times um, in Buenos Aires, and um, he had a lot of baggage that he personally carried, mm-hmm. which I think makes him approachable and vulnerable, and ultimately, as I've heard from readers, likable. Yeah, it is. He is. Uh there's a lot of family dynamics going on in this book and people weighed down by the ghosts of the past. Right. Yeah. So Coop, I, the only quibbles I would have is that, you know, I want that job that he had to just be some freelancer slash adventurer going around and picking up the scent of a good story and then following it instead of like trying to, cram in, you know, four hours of a school board meeting into 12 column inches of type and, you know, the unglamorous day-to-day of just, you know, the first draft of, you know, the local news. Like, I was, you know, on the front lines and it's nowhere near as fun and exciting and glamorous as what you make it out to be. But that's not a criticism. That's just, you know, jealousy. Well, I'm jealous of this character, and I want his job. Well, I think um, in the epilogue, um, you learn more about why he wanted to give up journalism. He carries um, a lot of grief and guilt from a situation. Yeah. Well, you opened the book with him basically in the aftermath of a momentous occasion that he turned down Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, which has happened before. Yeah. Sinclair Lewis. Well, also, you know, they're trying to take away the Pulitzer Prize that I'm going to remember, misremember his name, but he covered Moscow back in the 30s for the New York Times. Oh. And there was a reporter who was trying to say, you know, these show trials and everything, or, or the Holodomor, the famine in the Ukraine. Uh-huh. He was reporting on it, and the guy who won the Pulitzer was covering it up, doing Stalin's dirty work and tidying it up. And the guy won the Pulitzer, and yet the one who, an English journalist, or Scottish, I think, who was exposing the horrors of the famine and how many people were dying, Tens of millions of people died in the Ukraine back in the early 30s, mid-30s. I was unaware of that. Um, but, but anyway, this, the whole Pulitzer thing is a great setup because you don't really know why. I mean, you get some inklings and you get this, you know, it helps propel the narrative. Like, he's just getting his feet back underneath him. Does he even want to do this? He's got a moral complexity about what he does that you know, you can really relate to. And also, I, you know, with the consolidation of the press, um, the um, female lead, romantic lead, Erica, is from a family very much... Like we have with the Redstones today. And us, Murdoch. And, and Murdoch. It's like succession a little bit of teasing out there, yeah. Right. 
but she's way more. Uh, she's a very attractive character. I got to say that. I mean, the way you describe her, you obviously give it a bunch of thought. Right. Is there anyone modeled on anyone? You know, all of my characters are modeled on someone or a composite of people I know. And there is, um, she's biracial and um, she's a Jew. And I happened to know a biracial Jew um, that was very, very attractive. She wasn't involved at all with, with journalism. Journalism, but just physically a stand-in for the character. Right. Yeah. And um, actually, the one I'm talking about was with publishing with Motown Music. Okay. In Detroit. Yeah, Barry Gordy. Right. Well, even before that, it was what, Hot hot Stacks or? Hot Stacks? I'm trying to remember the name of the the recording company. It was a very low-rent operation, but they got down on wax all the great migration artists like B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf and all those people. Chess, Chess records. Yes. Yeah. Great stuff. So back to Erica. She... You know, as a romantic lead, but also a key plot character because she's basically in charge of the news division for this massive, her family's massive conglomeration. So tell me uh, how you use her in the story, like besides, you know, the romantic. I see her as a person that is facing prejudice today um, and is seated in a position to um, hopefully or seemingly be above any prejudice, but still has suffered from it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important because I'm, I'm worried about America today. I'm worried about white supremacy. Yeah, it seems to be a resurgence that the worst instincts of people seem to be like the nation's free-flowing id is just out of the box. It's not good. And there's anti-Semitism that exists today. All this George Soros stuff, that's anti-Semitic. It all goes back to that. Right. And so I wanted, I wanted to bring that up, um, and as part of her character, um, and yeah, that that's I guess about it there. Yeah, but also she's um, nudging the plot along with. Oh yeah, you know the coop, the protagonist. He either quits or is fired. I'm still not really sure. But it gives him the freedom to go back out there. And his editor was worried about him. It wasn't that he quit because the story was just getting too improbable or, you know, over their heads. It was danger. Like, people start dropping like flies. Right. And he is pursued. Um, And one of the 
the most interesting things that I learned through research was about Lebensborn. Yeah, that's really scary. The pure Aryan um, generation that um, Himmler was responsible for starting and it's a real thing yeah they were breeding a master race they were yeah and yeah. May, who knows what what's going on with that right yeah and we we have an era today where we've got uh, neo-nazis coming up we've got white supremacy in this country um it's, I don't know how far away it is. Yeah, it's got that kind of 1850s feel to it in, the, in America, right? I don't know how it's going to end. I'd like to think that democracy has survived challenges before. This does feel existential, though. And you realize how fragile it was with these state elector panels and refusal of the former occupant to peacefully transfer power all the norms and traditions, we realize how much of this nation's moral infrastructure depended on people just being in good faith and doing the right thing in customs and traditions. We just assumed that people would follow the law. And it just goes very much back to, you know, the National Socialist Party that they ignored all the norms and and traditions of their culture to just seize power. And, the, and they took advantage of a situation that had been very difficult for um, the German people. Um, the reparations were after World War I, were, and uh, all the restraints on Germany were extreme. Yeah, and, it was punitive. And, and they were... Um, they were in a great depression, an economic depression. The whole world was. And here's this guy that comes along and says, you know, we are a special breed of people and, and we the, don't have to abide by these draconian rules and stuff. And wow, I see a reflection of that today. Yeah, well, it's interesting, the British electoral campaigns in the 19 in 1932 because the nazis got like 41 percent in an election in june or july and then another election in october november trying to form a working majority for the parliament they got like 37 they were losing support uh-huh. and the communists were gaining support right so this is going to be this center-right coalition that like Franz von Papen was trying to put together with Hindenburg, who was the chancellor, who was pretty much out of it by then, you know, the World War I hero. But they thought they could work with Hitler, that he could, you know, be amenable to a working coalition if, they were, if he was allowed to form a government. So even though his support was slipping, they thought, well, we'll Franz von Papen, he's the one that really enabled Hitler, literally enabled him with the Enabling Acts, which is where he seized power in early part of 1933. It's just amazing how it just like it happened. Germany was a flourishing 
constitutional republic for several generations, even though it, you know, the titular monarchy. But Bismarck, for all his, you know, Iron Chancellor stuff, he really, um, interesting fellow, because, you know, Social Security, unemployment insurance, all these social infrastructure things came out of a guy who was very on the right side of the political spectrum. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I I think that um, there is no question that the world today is becoming um, very nationalistic, um, and we are in danger because of that. Autocratic. Mm-hmm. There's a large minority of people in this country who will willingly accept authoritarianism if it's their guy. Yeah. Yeah. And they will excuse any indiscretion or illegal procedure. Yeah, if it sticks it to the lips. To them. It's very much driven by resentment. This whole, you know, the, the whole, I don't even want to say his name, but he's, you know, Trump is masterfully corralled. It's like David Axelrod said, he has a feral genius for riling people up. And we're talking about him now. He's like living in our heads rent free. I know. So let's get back to the story then, Ron. We, right. We already, we talked about this. Uh, just so you know, we're in a discussion group. Uh, I don't know. What would you call it? A bunch of bullshitters. Um, it's called the uh, something. Uh, the Leather Ape, Apron Club. Leather after, Apron Club. After Benjamin Franklin's junto back right. in the 1700s. And uh, yeah, some really, really wise people that have been around and discuss matters of great importance. And uh, I always enjoy those discussions. But I come away, you know, mostly I want to get the, you know, who's watching what or, you know, read this article or, you know, that. Right. Yeah, those are great. And and I do learn a lot from, from those meetings. Um, and I think we have enough different points of view that makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not I really do. All acclamation. Yeah, um, it's not confirmation bias. People's assumptions are getting uh, checked. Right. Yeah, so that's why we're getting lost in this political cul-de-sac now, because <laughs> we've been talking about it all day. <laughs> right. But back to the hands of Juan Perón. So what was the process of writing this? Did you write it during the pandemic? Was that, did that help you, or did that make it more difficult, or what happened? And what's the, how did it, you know, how did you get it, how did you get uh, slapped between two covers? Well, it took a long time. Um, I, uh, I had talked to, I used to be represented by, um, a gentleman from, uh, um, William Morris, um, a wonderful guy. He was head of their literary department and, he, um, I talked to him about it and he, he thought it was a, a really good idea. Yeah. It's a, it would, it lends itself to cinema. Yes. It's got a lot of kinetic energy. And I was a director, so I write cinematically. Yeah, I can and, tell. And as every, like the things that that I get played back from people, 
is that it's a fast, it's a page turner, it's a fast read, it's a fun read. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, um, unfortunately, he died. Um, before he could shepherd this work to completion? Yeah, it was quite a bit before because yeah. it ended up taking about three or four more years. Three or four more years? Yeah, at, from when I did the treatment yeah. and all and talked to uh, him about it. And so um, I finished the book because I believed in it. And um, it's a creative outlet, which is important to me. Um, but I did a ton of research, mm -hmm. a lot of research. And then I did rewrites. You know, there are no great writers. There are rewriters. Absolutely. And um, Or like Hemingway said, I write drunk, I edit sober. <laughs> That's wonderful. Anyway, so I, I finished the book. And... Um, nobody at William Morris really was interested in, in the book. And so then I had to find another agent. And it is very difficult today. I mean, the publishing business, I'm just going to digress for a minute, wants proven properties. They want, they want, um, sequels and franchises and absolutely yeah they're not taking the chances because it is a very expensive operation right so I I uh, hired this guy that supposedly helped you get an agent well he didn't really help that much yeah sure <laughs> and so I sent out 79 query letters mm-hmm and I got zero interest. Did you get any replies? People saying, well, this isn't really my thing. I got one person, actually from William Morris, that asked to see the manuscript. Yeah. And I sent the manuscript on day one. On day three, I got a two-line email back saying this wasn't for him. Um, and so at that point, I was extremely frustrated, and, it, and I said, okay, I'm going to build this. I'm going to publish it. I've got really good resources. I had an excellent editor mm -hmm. that worked with me. I had a, a brilliant designer. That yeah, it's got a good design. I like that. Yeah, shade of red. It's powerful. It is, and it's simple, and it really relates. Actually, we designed. He designed it initially with a swastika in the middle. Uh huh. But I learned that um, that's publishing poison. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, and so I went ahead and published it, and the problems with um, self-publishing basically our promote the problem is promotion yeah and so or as we call it in the trade pimping <laughs> pimp 
read the book. It's so, the technical term. <laughs> anyway, that's that's kind of what's happened. But what's been wonderful is that um, I have people uh, promoting it. There's a a lady that's doing social media uh, publicity and uh, advertising, and a lot of people uh, have recommended the book. It's 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 very nice. It's done quite well for like you know a yeah. self published book. Well, it's, it does have a good design because I you can spot an amateur effort from the typography like from a mile away and people don't understand how important typography is right i have a creative director of the magazine is a german lady who's trained you know in their system and that is typography driven and you look at the magazine we focus on typography it's a very important part of the presentation i think your book is really remarkably good oh thanks yeah from a graphic point of view and all, um, you know, how many communities of 8,000 have a slick book like that? Yeah, Taos, New Mexico, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Sun Valley, Idaho, and Ojai, California. Yeah. That's it. And it's nice. It's nice. It does yeah, a it's lot fun. For, it does a lot for the community. Um, okay, you've earned your 20 bucks. You can... No, no, I, I, I mean that. I mean that. I, I worry about journalism today. What's happening? Yeah, it's uh, it's always been kind of a struggle. And we think of this, you know, golden age of journalism from like, you know, uh, Walter Lippmann till, you know, Johnny W. Apple and all these great journalists. You know, even today, Woodward and Bernstein and we're kind of living on the fumes of that. It seems to be going back to where journalism used to be before the 20s, 1920s, was party organs and special interest newsletters. And, you know, everything was so hyperpartisan. And that's really where, you know, from when journalism first emerged in the public popular sense in 1830-something with the penny press... And advertising-driven model. Yeah, we seem to be reverting back right. to that. But anyway, yeah. the the um, the book is, I think, doing better than I thought yeah. it would do from from the efforts, and that's because of a lot of people that have yeah. really uh, been good about it. I'm going to talk at a book club on the 26th here um, in town, and I've done some of those, and it's fun. Uh-huh, yeah. It's uh, social, and especially coming out of the pandemic. Did you write a lot during the pandemic? Like, Yeah. Was it, because um, I remember the dread of the early days of the pandemic made it hard for me to commit to any kind of a routine and... You know, but again, it was also driving some efforts as well, because what else are you going to do? <laughs> well, but you were already well along with this project. I mean, you right. must have just been tightening up the. Right. 
And it was it was rewriting a lot. Yeah, that's and, much more fun than writing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's and I don't know. Everybody writes differently. The book takes the characters take on a life of their own, mm-hmm. and I found that in this in writing this book. Yeah, you really identify with these people. And they, in effect, tell the story. At least, that's my experience. Yeah, you don't really know where they're going to take you. It reveals itself. Right. But it, there was a silly movie with Ryan Reynolds called, I don't remember the name of it. Oh, Free, Free Guy, about NPCs, non-player characters in video games. And the premise is, you know, it's silly, I won't go into it, but... It makes you wonder, like, is somebody writing us? Are we oh, yeah. creations in some simulation? <laughs> the simu- oh, the, the concept of the world being simulated and stuff. But I, I believe, uh, and this has happened, I've been writing uh, all of my adult life. Um, I believe I channel at times. I yeah. really believe that. I, you know... I learned in high school, I was a stringer, and I learned that, you know, you sit down at the typewriter then, and you you type your story out. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to, I mean, you have to write. And that's the way I can sit down and write at any time because of that training. The discipline. Yeah. Um, and... Things happen. Yeah, there's a. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with that Stephen Pressfield book, The War of Art. And the major premise of that book is forget all this nonsense about inspiration and the muse sitting on your shoulder. You sit down to the goddamn desk and you start writing. Right. And then you force yourself into that discipline and then it opens up. Yeah. But it's like just getting your mind into the discipline of it's a craft i'm a craftsman and this is what i do i highly recommend that book yeah i I, it is a craft it is absolutely a craft and there are there are rules that work and if you know them well enough you can break them Mm -hmm. and um but even in breaking them, they're still there, basically. And it goes back to um, a sympathetic character is faced with overwhelming odds against him and survives at the end. Yeah, it's very um, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. The myth. Yeah. Well, one thing I will applaud you on, which is something that I always look for since I heard this formulation, that it all comes down to action verbs, concrete nouns. And you you stick to that. I do. There's no airy-fairy, third-person wandering away. And you bring it very specific. And it's a, it's linear, which propels it like you... It keeps the story moving. But action verbs and concrete nouns. I heard that from 
Jimmy Breslin, and it just <laughs> it stuck. He's talking about the nuns and the the uh, working class uh, Catholic or parochial school that he went to. They they hammered it into his head. It it's I write in scenes, and um, that's just the way I I visualize everything as I write it. Mm. All the details, because you have a lot of them, and I wanted to talk about that. Then we'll talk about, I'd like to get some, you have a very interesting biography, but there's descriptions of the damask curtains and the the, uh, double-breasted suits with the open collars and or the spread collars and just the fashion that you describe in the book. It's got vivid descriptions that are really like, wow, I, I can totally see this guy and I, I know how he's going to brush his teeth or how his morning routine is going to be. And, you know, just by the way they're dressed and the way that they, you know, carry themselves. But yeah, you got, where did you get all this knowledge of, of, uh, fashion and furniture and all these the finer things in life because you do you know the descriptions of like the Erica's apartment and the family home and and Buenos Aires well I I'm of an observer um I although most people don't it realize this um i'm an introvert and i and i and i'm interested in a lot of things i have a lot of curiosity and when i see something that i like that i think is telling like when i you know describe a guy with a sport coat and open collar shirt or something that's something that tells me about the person it's not just a description mm-hmm. of what it is and I think when you're talking about the furniture in Raul's apartment and all it tells it tells about what they're like they're very opulent and they're very ostentatious uh-huh. and, and that's all character Details like you know these people through their surroundings, through their environment, and and that's that's why I use. And as I said, I I visualize them. I'm able to to describe it, and and it's based upon things I've seen, you know, and observed. Um, when I the locations. In the book are all actual locations yeah. in Buenos Aires, and um, that helps too f- for the description. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how did you? I mean, you've had quite a life journey yourself. Now, where were you born and grew up? I, I think I've I've known, but I forget. I grew. Uh, I was born in. Kansas City, Missouri. And you said in Overland Park or? Well, um, Leewood, Kansas. So this is in Kansas, but Kansas City, Missouri, so a very eastern part of Kansas. Well, 
it's very it's very east, uh, right on the edge of Kansas. Like um, we were in the suburbs on the Kansas side. Yeah. And you mentioned Overland Park. That's a big. That's all. Yeah. Maybe somebody else that I know is from there. And Leewood, where we lived, was two blocks away from the Missouri line, from state line. Um, But anyway, um, I traveled around. Uh, My my father was a musician. Oh, really? What was the what was the story? Well, he was a jazz musician. Well, Kansas uh, City, that makes sense. Um, was he bebop? And he um, he became, he, he joined this, he was with a Paul Whiteman Orchestra. Oh, yeah. And um, he played. That was a big band, big band era. He played jazz violin. And. My brother came along, and then I came along, and my mom said, we can't live on the road anymore and put the kids in um, the drawers of, you know, the bureaus and things. So he took a job with a country western group um, and uh, played for radio stations. And the group was um, in the era of the Sons of the Pioneers, and they um, they made movies with Gene Autry and recorded for Columbia and stuff. But Dad hated that, and he ended up becoming um, musical director for radio stations, and we moved around a lot. And finally, he became a radio station manager in Kansas City, and we settled down. Yeah. How old were you before he put down roots like that? Well, uh, I was in eighth grade. Okay. So you have vivid memories of life on the road. Oh, yeah. traveling. Well, and being the new kid in school over and over again. Yeah. You know, my first book is very autobiographical, Donnie Boy. Yeah. And it's about... But isn't that set in South Dakota? That takes place in... in Yankton, South Dakota, is the actual place. And um, German prisoners of war that mm. were there. And a relationship that warm with a right. boy. So, yeah. So that's kind of my background. And then I went to the University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Did you figure in a career in journalism, or were you thinking larger I th- media <laughs> I entertainment? Thought, I thought in terms of journalism until um, I worked on the television station, KOMU, which was the local, the college station was the local station in Columbia. Okay. And I said, I like this. I like this better than print journalism. Um, And also, one of the alums in my fraternity had an ad agency in Kansas City, and I worked there during the summers, and I did commercials, and I liked that a lot. So I transitioned um, into <laughs> in, into video uh, advertising, and um, who were some of your early clients, like the local car dealer and the hardware store, and 
Main Street type businesses, or are you do already working with the they, heavy hitters? They actually had um, clients like Beach Aircraft. Wow. They had, there was a chain of drugstores, my favorite client. There was a chain of drugstores called Cat's Drug Stores, and they had that, and they put on a Saturday dance party program oh, fun. at the local station. And I got to go there and produce live commercials, uh, and I loved that. And then when I, um, when I graduated college, I was drafted, and um, I didn't take ROTC in school. And so I was sent to Leonard Wood. Oh, yeah. January 1. Leonard, Fort and, Leonard Wood, Missouri. Oh, God. Were you enlisted or commissioned? I was, in, I was drafty. I was enlisted at that yeah, time. Yeah, me too. Um, and so I uh, went through basic training, and then they sent me to clerk type of school uh, at the Quartermack uh, in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And um, I got assigned to the CIO, um, to the information officer there mm -hmm. and stuff, who was an alcoholic. And my job was to go into town babysit him to the ABC store every day and get him some Jack Daniels. But I ended up learning about this um, special group that did recruitment publicity for the Army and the Air Force on Governor's Island, New York, right off the battery. Oh, yeah. And I got in touch with the colonel at, in charge of it at the Pentagon under uh, AGC. And um, I met with him, and they transferred me there. And I worked with, like, extraordinary people. Uh, you were was, a young GI in Manhattan and lower Manhattan, and what what generation? Where? What time? This was in the sixth. Oh, okay, things are popping. And um, so I I fell in love with uh, New York, and when I was I was given a direct commission, and when I left, um, I went back to Kansas City, um, and I uh, worked for this agency I'd worked with before, but I knew I wanted to go to East. Back to, back to the East. And I ended up getting a couple of offers and going back there. And, yeah. I, and I did that for, um, I became, I was sent to Detroit as, Creative director on the Chrysler account. Oh I, wow, it's a big account. When I was, so you, like, were you totally Don Drapering it, or were you more of no, a Rod, were no, you more of a I Roger Sterling? Married, I had a couple Come of kids. Come on, Ron. And we'll talk off camera or off <laughs> mic. But anyway, and then I decided that was the era of the three martini lunch. No, oh. I had I had two martinis one day and passed out. I said oh, no. I ended up. Uh, deciding I wanted to be a director because I thought I would do better than the people that were directing my commercials. Yeah. And I ended up becoming a commercial director. I and did. you ended up 
hanging out your own shingle, didn't you? Go form right. your own agency. I did. Yeah. Was that scary or were you excited or did you have clients that you took with you or how was it getting that, getting your feet underneath you? I was able, you? actually I had changed jobs in Detroit to another large agency in charge of three of their offices. And the first agency tried to get me back and I said, nope. I don't want to, actually, I don't want to work in an agency. I want to direct. And so we worked out a, a deal where they gave me a contract that I would create uh, concepts and direct for their some of their clients. Mm-hmm. And that's how I, I, I was underwritten with a contract. Okay. So you're that. basically working for them as a freelancer on your own, much like your protagonist in Hands of Juan Perón, but you they gave you the work or clients and you just however you got it done, that was that was it. That was you know, um you had to deliver and Absolutely. I did. And I they it was a one year contract which they renewed. At the end of the second year I felt that I was conscripted. I, I was restricted, not conscripted, uh, kind of conscripted. But anyway, um, I decided that that I had a, a decent enough reel that I could... Your sizzle reel? Yeah. So yeah. I, um, I ended that contract, although they still gave me work. Work now and then or whenever they... Right. And I got um, other things. And it it ended up, it was a wonderful career. Uh, yeah, well, you did well enough to get yourself to OI. Right? Yeah. So what was the, you know, your favorite clients and what was it? I know you've done a lot of commercials. I've seen a few. You did, you use local people and locations in some of your national accounts. Right. That was actually um, in 1996. I uh, closed down my production company because the, the advertising world was, like, terrible. And I was going to just write. Um, and so I ended up getting these clients whom I had worked with asking me to do their creative as well as their production. And so that was terrific. Um, so you're writing the scripts for the commercials. I would do the scripts and I would produce them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to deal with 15 people on set looking at a monitor and arguing among themselves about... Oh, my. They shot a commercial for dog food down right below my office here. There was like 45 people. And they had like five or six dogs. And they had to keep them in an air-conditioned van just to get them out to do the shot and get them back. Right. And it took like half a day to get, you know, 30 seconds of film. That's crazy. It takes longer than that sometimes. Well, yeah, I, I, that's only for the shoot. I don't know how long it's going to take to get put the reel in shape, you know. The um, But my favorite clients uh, were... Um, probably McDonald's. I did several of the... Any ones we'd remember? Oh, I think so. Probably the one called um, New Kid. 
It was about people that were retired that were um, going to work as counter kids for McDonald's. That won a lot of awards. Oh. Um, Bartles and James, you may remember uh, a Gallo product. Um, the one, I've won uh, several awards. Are they Cleo's? Is that uh, the advertising world, Cleo's? Yeah, I've got, I, I've won several of those, and Addie's New York art director, oh, yeah. and I won two con of Silver Eagles. Uh, so it was, it was fun. It was fun working with good creative people, but that ended. Um, they were, you know, in, in the 90s, there was kind of a recession in advertising, and they, yeah. they fired the talented uh, people and brought in kids that worked for half the price. Yeah. And it was, and they had grown up on um, MTV where there weren't concepts, it was just flash and, yeah, yeah. And, assaulting people with images and. And I did basically like um, dialogue commercials. Yeah. Hallmark, um, McDonald, well, almost everybody. I, I also did some car, did car commercials. You, you do, I did, um, ex, uh, you know, I did a range of commercials, but basically I was known as the dialogue director. Oh, well, I can tell from your dialogue in the book, it's got the bear similitude which is really hard with dialogue you see people like Hemingway would just chop it down into the bear parts mm -hmm. because it's well I don't know if it's necessarily easier that way but it makes it its own kind of character like you don't I don't know I, I love Hemingway's dialogue but it's not as flowing as like yours is and more story driven Right. Yeah, so this was the explosion of cable as well. Like, how did that affect your business? Um, was it more business? You think it'd mean more business? I think that um, there are two intersections that have affected um, production. One of them is digital video. Video, and I'm speaking of digital video cameras. Yeah. Digital editing. Um, even the, you know, there, there are features shot on iPhones. Yeah. Uh, there was a movie, uh, Candy, shot on an iPhone 7, and it looks just fine. Uh-huh. And um, so it's cut the, not that the tentpole pictures don't cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. But people that uh, are on the internet, I mean, my God, TikTok. Uh, mm -hmm. There's and, some very creative people out there. Yeah. The berries, the old gatekeepers are gone. Right. Yeah. And, so, which means that we're flooded with a lot of crap, but there's also, you know, little treasures in the middle of the. Yeah. pile of crap. So that the the idea of 
Um, inexpensive production is one thing. And then there are so many outlets for video today. Mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok. Um, oh, they're all over the place. And a lot of them for ill, but... Um, it is what, it just, this is it. We got to deal with it. Right. It's not, we're not going, we're not going to get that back in the box. Do any of these agencies still get those big budgets that, what, did you get to work with some really fat budgets? Did I what? Get to work with some really big budgets. Like you were given when, money to do like okay. by the clients. There was a uh, multi-million dollar Clydesdale commercial for I, Budweiser. I I shot in Aspen. Um, that I mean, I did. But many of the commercials were like half a million dollars. Um, the minimum commercial I remember, and this goes back to the eighties. The minimum was probably $150,000, and that was probably a studio shoot, and maybe you were shooting two in one day. And um, probably the most expensive commercial that I I shot, and others shot many more expensive ones, uh, was probably two million, two and a quarter. Wow. Um, But... It's not all profit, I'll tell you. Oh, no, I'm sure. You got to keep a big crew on and you got to be hunting for business all the time. Did you have somebody soliciting clients or was it just you with your relationships? I had a salesman in Los Angeles where our offices were and New York. Uh huh. So, and two salespeople or one who worked in both offices? Separate. Okay. You had to have. Um, and he would go, the New York guy would go to, to um, the continent um, at least once a year. Yeah, to a trade show or just to set up Call in a hotel and just start doing pitches? Go to, like, um, London. A lot. I did a lot of work in London and Paris, basically. Yeah. And to the international client. Um, Did they like hiring American directors? Did that seem like, you know, a bit of a lure because you were from the land of, you know, Hollywood and entertainment industry that there was, was a cachet? usually because they saw a commercial that I had done that they liked. Yeah. <laughs> For And it could be, it could be, it could have been anything. I mean... I did um, Sainsbury's is a uh, yeah to chocolates right no, or no it's a department, department or a, store yeah uh, they had seen something that I had done that they they wanted me to come over and do a series of spots for them oh wow and um, because I did uh, beer commercials um, I did um, commercials. Uh, in England for beers. Um, and it's a, you never knew. You never knew. 
where they first saw you or well generally we would know yeah what the reason was for choosing it's very it was very competitive i'm sure yeah um but it for a long time it was fun yeah what was the name of your agency um my company was Leewood Productions. Leewood Productions, and that's where did you come up with that name? I grew up in Leewood, Kansas. Okay, nice. Yeah, you did say that. So, um, what else? It's going to ask you about just how did you find Ohio, Ron? Like you've been here for twenty-five, thirty years, or something? We've been here since two thousand three. Oh, really? I thought you got here before me. I got here in two thousand. Um. Kenyon, our youngest, went to prep school at Thatcher. Oh, nice. And we were very active in the school and got to know a lot of people in Ohio. Yeah. Um, and we liked it. And when I closed down my company and, and we have four sons and they were all grown we lived in the Palisades in a big house. And we were rattling around and we were deciding what's our next step, Linda and I. And she loved uh, Santa Fe. Yeah, well, to, there's much to love. She used to go there every summer. And, um, I didn't like Santa Fe. I thought Santa Fe was a gift shop. And mm -hmm. so we compromised, I guess, um, and we bought a house on the top of Foothill in 2001 as a weekend house. And um, I, we totally... Um, redid the house. Yeah, Linda complains about your ta your furniture. Yeah, her, your obsession with mid-century modern. Right. Char Charles and Ames chairs and stuff. I frankly love mid-century modern. It's sleek and it's like custom built for environments that are tranquil and contemplative and clean lines. I've had two well-known architects. I had. Scott Johnson and Fred Fisher on the podcast. That was a big, big treat for me because yeah, they're top-notch architects, and they live right here in town. It's incredible. Right. And Fred's house is a, I don't want to call it a museum because people live in it, but it is one of the most beautiful homes I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I love negative space. Um, yeah. It's an important design concept. It is. Um, so anyway, um, then um, we liked, we got to know more people. We got involved with St. Andrews here. Um, and the Episcopal Church, just yeah. for people who don't know. Right. Yeah. And we um, decided, okay, we would make the move. And it took Linda a few years. To warm up to Ohio. Yeah. Well, she seems so naturally 
at home here, I would never suspect that. Right. If I were to suspect, I think it was her who dragged you here. No, it was the opposite, I think. And now she loves she loves it yeah. as much as I love it. There's no small town that has the layers of sophistication and hometown grunge. And, I mean, it's changed a lot since the pandemic. Do you have a take on all the influx of transplants that Ohio's taken on? I have. In fact, I've talked to you about doing a piece for your uh, magazine. Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, I've done a little bit of research that I need to do more. Um, there is a new generation um, coming to Ojai. Yeah. And it is, it's, you know about the Women's Fund. Of course. I've had Judy Norris on the show and... Of course, Karen Evenden is one of my favorite people. Right. Who I think of the as the founder. She she really was. And then Peggy Peggy Russell, of uh, course, joined her. But anyway, the optimistic thing I have about the new elites in Ohio are that they're joining things like the women's group to do good for the community. Yeah. And they moved here because of the community. Right. And that's very heartening. Um, the It's heartening to see um, the strollers and the, the, the younger people with mm -hmm. their children here. Um, it hasn't impacted the public schools. Yeah, from what I yeah, think. I'm hoping it will. I'm hoping they roll up. I just really, I find it very distressing when people give up on public schools and the sorting that goes on in America by class and income. Oh yeah, it really bothers me. It used to be the public schools is where everybody came together. It and it is, um, and there's you know I went to public schools all my life. Yeah, Linda went to public schools all her life. Um, well, our, your character went to Buckley, which is a very Tony private school, right. and I guess it would be in keeping with his status, I guess, as a son of a important journalist and a wealthy mother, is that right? His mother. And the tragedy yes. that happened to them, that seems to be the weight that he carries around, like his parents died and he never really got over it. Well, I have to admit that um, our kids grew up in the Palisades and the, it was just uh, almost expected that your kids would go to private schools. Yeah. One of our sons did not. He went to, he went to Pally High. Um, but it is... I'm hoping that um, as younger people come into the community, that um, they do go to the public schools because we've got some good public schools here. Yeah, for what they have to work with. I know the superintendent was one of the early guests, and she's been on twice. She's really dynamic. We're lucky to have her. 
I hope we can keep her long enough to see the enrollment start creeping back up. And it's it's uh, capitation, so we need yeah, the enrollment. That's right, because it's lagging. They gotta fund the. You know, it's always the funds are trailing a year behind the falling enrollment, right. so it's really hard to adjust and manage the declining enrollment. And it was at one point they thought it would bottom out it. From a peak of 4,100 in 1999, they figured it would bounce back at like 25, but I think it's barely over two now. And yeah, we need we need people to, you know, the public schools can be whatever you make them. Right. One of the reasons private schools work, besides the vast amounts of money and resources, is parents are expected to show up and raise funds and add, you know, enrichment yes. to the curriculum and so forth. And if people did that for public schools, then that distance would shrink. And I think they would feel more a part of the community. Right. I, I agree. And um, I'm hoping that things change. But I think that... My cohort, um, you know, the Bill Emmendens and the John Russells and the Marty Pops and mm-hmm. and, and all from Tom our, Krause and Esther Wachtel and, and Esther great people, yeah, and all. Um, we're going to be <laughs> we're starting to leave now, you know, uh, generally yeah, in urns, but uh, we need. A, a really vital group of people. And the social infrastructure yes. is beyond question. What makes Ojai so amazing, like such a lovely place to live? It's not just the astonishing natural beauty, because that means nothing without the people to share it with. Right. Yeah. Any final thoughts? We've gone over quite a bit already, so <laughs> we're in bonus time now, people. Anything you want to say? Oh, where can we get your book? Oh, um, you can get uh, my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Book Baby, um, pretty much your favorite bookstore. Powell's? Can you get it at Powell's Bookstore? The independent bookseller in Portland, Oregon, they have a great online store. I don't even know about them. So yeah. I and what about can't... Bart's books, Poppy's Art and Gift? Have you tried to get some no. on, the, on the shelves here locally? No, I haven't. Uh, uh, I think you I think you should. I think people would enjoy seeing that, especially so, your friends and family. Um, yeah. Um, I, um, who is? Well, Bart's books, you know, of course. Yeah, I know Bart's. I don't and, know anybody there. Oh, well, Matt is the one to speak to. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, what do you have? Any advice for people struggling with writer's block or ideas or hard to get on paper? You know, you have to write. You just have to write. And then you have to be able to kill your own babies. Yeah. Uh, and those those aren't original with me, but... Um, you have to write. Yeah, that's a good place to quit there. 
All right, Ron. Thanks. This is really fun. Thank you so much. A lot of pleasure. Coop put his right foot on the chair and folded his hands on his knees. Look, I'm not trying to be a prima donna. Fact is, I'd plan on telling Paul this morning I'd given up on journalism. But something came up that changed my mind. Erica nodded. Fair enough. So what is it? He gestured at the people in the room. My guess is most everyone in this room has forgotten or never even known someone broke into Juan Perón's tomb 28 years ago and sawed off his hands. Whoa, that's a grabber. Thanks, Ron. Hey, everybody, Brett Bradigan here, just thinking out loud. So we wrapped up our talk with Ron Phillips, and I hope you get a little taste of how amazing the the book is. It's hard to describe what makes it so enticing, but it's definitely a really fun read. And it's like, makes me think of going through the 120 or so episodes of this podcast, that there's a lot of writers in Ojai, and a lot of them are very good, and they write all kinds of different stuff. Now, I know part of the reason why people come to Ojai is because they're writers, and they seek that refuge and that quiet, contemplative space that Ron, Ron represents that, I think. We also have some homegrown writers, which are, are fun to talk to, like Tammy, Tamara, Tamara Davis, and her book uh, about social media, which really uh, I found quite intriguing. It makes me wonder when I got to write my book. So I'm just so you know, I don't know, imagine that many people make it all the way to the end here, but I can tease out a little bit that I've got some 80,000 words into my project, which is a memoir cookbook. And I grew up on a farm and my dad was a avid expert gardener and orchard manager. We always had amazing vegetables fresh every day and pickled and preserving and canning, a lot of hunting, fishing, small game, deer, always had a freezer full of wild game. And I write each chapter about an incident that I remember and then the recipes that would accompany it. For example, like a cold, miserable day out on the boat fishing and caught a lake trout and my mom poached it with tomato aspic, which I don't even know where she got that from. And she took what a lake trout is not really a trout, it's a char. And it's a slow-growing fish. Beautiful, though. But it is known for kind of a soft, mealy flesh. But for some reason, my mom's instinct told her to cook it in tomato aspic. And it turned into this just lovely, almost frothy meat with this, this kind of fluffy and it just would melt on your mouth, almost literally melt on your mouth with just this little puff of soft briny flavor 
It was delicious. I just remember how exciting it was to have that turkey roasting pot out in the counter for three or four days. I think I grew up with five brothers and sisters. I was five of six. I think most of them were gone then because otherwise it would have been gone in a day. But just how much fun it was to go by and just take a forkful of that meat. Anyway, I've got maybe 30 chapters um, and 30 recipes. And maybe I'll share some with you a little later. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.